0: So this is the uh, second teaser for the thematic series on love that, uh, well, I don't know, I guess, Advent's in uh, two weeks, right? Yeah. Well, Trey may preach next week, we'll see. So uh, last week, you uh, may recall, we looked at the first use of love, or uh, what agape, or I guess the verb form was agapeo, which, you know, I should remember, confidence-inspiring, Uh, But the main point was that Jesus and the early church envisioned a concept of love that was so radical and so different from the way folks had thought about love that they basically had to borrow or invent a new word. And, you know, uh, in the instance we looked at last week, the primary focus, as it is in some ways today, was the relationship between love and law. And today we're going to kind of talk about not quite the other side of the coin, the flip side of that question maybe, which is uh, love and freedom. So uh, I don't know, first use last week of love as a verb by Jesus in the Gospels, a rich young man thinks that because he's kind of complied with a select portion of the law that he'll be saved. And the really interesting thing about that conversation, as you might recall, is that I don't know, what's most interesting about it is what does Jesus do? He forces the question on the young man of whether or not he recognizes who Jesus is. Jesus' character is God. So you might remember, the young man says, Good teacher, what do I have to do to achieve salvation? And Jesus says, as you recall, well, only God is good. And so the young man replies by doing what? He drops that good. He just says, well, tell me then, teacher, what I have to do. To achieve salvation. And I guess the point is that, you know, as we kind of worked through it, is that the young man, the rich young man, kind of saw mechanical compliance with the law as the thing that saves him. And in fact, he even kind of responds to Jesus's trolling him a little bit on only God is good, not by saying, oh, this is God standing in front of me, but instead by doing what? By dropping that good, by complying with the cultural requirement that's built into the law, in doing so, what does he do? He, he basically makes it so that he is demonstrating in concrete terms that he does not see who Jesus is. That's the beautiful thing about that whole conversation. It's not just about I don't know, the law versus love in some ways. It's really about whether or not, because of the young man's commitment to the law and the kind of mechanisms of the law, he can fully see and encounter Jesus and who Jesus is. So that to me, that and the, the great part about that text, which usually most folks kind of teach is like, hey, you know, this guy thinks it's okay to follow the law, but he wasn't willing to give up his wealth, so shame on him. But I think the kind of point of it is is deeper than that, right? It's not just about giving up riches. It's not just about anything that might prevent us from fully complying with the intention of the law. It's ultimately about when we're face-to-face with the person of Jesus, do we recognize... And do we love in response to the person that we encounter? And then young man does it. But not only does the young man not, the awesome thing is for this to be the kind of first use of agape as a verb in the uh, New Testament is that, you know, there's this kind of whole, there's lots of other ancient Middle Eastern gods that if you stood with them face to face and basically called them not God, I don't know else to say it. Like, you'd be in pretty big trouble, right? You might be smited or waxed or smoked or I don't know, whatever the right term is. But that's the crucial thing about the use of love here is that Jesus doesn't feel anger. Jesus isn't like, dude, you don't get it or I just tricked you or whatever the thing is. What does Jesus do? The text says Jesus looks at that confusion and he agapes the young man. He feels, uh, you know, overwhelming, unconditional, unlimited regard for and care for that person standing in front of him, even though that person totally and fully misrecognizes who Jesus is. I don't know, what I take from that is that we always are, and, we're, and it is fascinating that the first couple times that love emerges in the New Testament, it is almost always tied to this question of law. right? Like love and law was a, was a, was a big shtick. But the thing that's even more fascinating to me here is, what the vision of love that is articulated against the law suggests for us how it's different from the other visions of love that were available at the time and as we talked about last week you know almost all the kind of vocabularies for love that folks had were vocabularies that essentially said i love someone because they were a reflection of me or because they completed me you know you, you, you might sacrifice for your kids or for your spouse but in some way the ways that Greek folk thought about that vision of love and, and family love, storge, was that you know you had to care for people because they came from you, they were similar from you, they, you had a shared history, etc. And the same thing was true of phylos, friendship, love, you know, we, we saw the commonality in the, the, between the other person and us, and you know, I don't have to, you know, eros definitely is kind of about like seeing something that you want and getting it, and as the Greeks thought about love, they oftentimes thought about love as this like really, really, really powerful, positive feeling that you had towards someone because they were like you or because they advanced some interest for you or because you thought they were really great or whatever. And agape, as demonstrated in Jesus' conversation with the rich young man, is completely different. It requires you to kind of give up on yourself, to not put yourself first and to see the character of the other person as the big and, and most important thing. And so that's why you know, the early church needed this vision of love and why Jesus is kind of pushing this vision of love to think about a love that transforms us, changes us, makes a demand on us, forces a question on us, etc. So, you know, the first one in, in this, uh, well, so this is probably the first use of it in the New Testament tradition, and, you know, uh, in, in Galatians, the one we looked at from today, and I'll be honest, like, I think there's not, I, I try and, like, Make these determinations on the basis of what the best evidence says and looking at the scholarly debate. And there's a fairly strong consensus in favor of Galatians here, but the other thing is the other alternatives that we've talked about or that uh, might be as early or ones we've talked about recently. So let's just pretend that we know for sure that Galatians is the first one and dig in on this one. Okay, so this use of love as a verb. starts with what is one of my absolute favorite portions of the gospel. I mean, near favorite, probably. Maybe that's unsurprising for a Lutheran kid. But, five, one, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened by the yoke of slavery. So, I'm going to lay my cards on the table a little bit earlier than I normally do. I think one of the things that we miss in the way that the early church and Jesus talked about love is not just how we understand the relationship between love and the law which for us kinda oftentimes becomes this balance between I need to follow the law but I also need to be loving at the same time but the other thing I think that we often miss and that the early gospels had in mind was this intimate linkage between love and freedom that there was almost no way of thinking about agape without having it also be tightly tied to Not simply a condition of dependency or what you owed the other person or what you had to do for them, but almost always, agape is tied to the question of freedom. That one of the great insights around agape is not just that it's about being unconditional, not just that it's about putting the other person first, but as Jesus thought about it and as the early church thought about it, agape was the realm in which we became most free. Where we were most fully able to be in relationship without constraint and one of the things that's kind of beautiful about how Paul talks about it here and especially how Paul talks about freedom is there's what does it mean to be free what what is it you know how do we normally think about freedom we know how the Greeks and the Romans and kind of how we thought about freedom when we think about freedom you know we might start by saying yeah freedoms good because it's good that people are free and we have to respect people but as we think about freedom and especially as the Greeks and the Romans thought about freedom and I don't know, think about how we talk about free markets, for example. As soon when we talk about freedom, we turn awfully quickly to the idea that what's great about freedom is it produces a good outcome. What's great about freedom is that a free people is going to make good choices. and the kind of Greeks and the Romans and all those folks thought about the idea that you know maybe the king couldn't make the best decisions on their own, or the emperor couldn't, but if everyone decided together, well, freedom was great because it would get us to the place that we wanted to go. Now, the early Christian community thinks about it differently. And that's what I love about this thing in Galatians. Like, think for a while about how amazingly radical it is that it would declare that the reason why you are set free is simply to be free. Not because freedom is even a moral good, not because freedom achieves some moral end, but that Jesus sets us free simply and solely for the sake of our own freedom. It's a tautology. I'm like, you're free because you're set free for your freedom. But what does that mean? What, is it, what does it get at? What's it, what is What is? What is the thing that it's supposed to, you know, do in us, aim at for us, create for us, etc.? And, et cetera. and the, the word for freedom in that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free is eleutheria. And it was the word that folks would have used for someone who was not a slave, but it literally meant that a person could kind of move around however they wanted to. You could come and you could go however you wanted to and do it as you please. it... it If that vision of freedom is not just like, hey, you can't tell me what to do, but it's the idea that you could go places and connect and do things and kind of explore the possibilities for uh, for a relationship that were around you in a way that other folks couldn't. And Paul kind of gets the paradox that's built into that. I think that's why it says, stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. The way they thought about freedom was like, hey, I can move around, I can go from place to place, but what is the result of that freedom? The result of that freedom is not that I move infinitely or do whatever I want to, it's that I stand. I find and root myself in something that is more powerful than, more significant than myself, and in doing so, that's the weird paradox. I become more free because I am tied tighter to the source of love and relationship that underwrites all love and all relationship. And maybe that's one of the things that's kind of weird about how we think about freedom. Like, in our view of freedom, kind of don't tread on me. Like, you can't tell me what to do. Like, you know, get your laws off me. But that's not how Paul thought about freedom, and that's not how Christ thinks about freedom. Freedom is, instead of any one of those things, the idea that we are able to be more meaningfully and more deeply in relationship in a way that is not dictated by anything other than the character of the person with whom we interact. And that's what they saw that we don't i think what they saw that we don't is of course we can become unfree because there's a government or a law or a structure what they were more concerned about is that we can become unfree because we can be bound to our own desires and preferences because we have things that we really 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 want and if the things that we really 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 want don't square with what it is that god desires for us those things make us less free to be in relationship with others and that, that relationship, I, I think, that idea, that insight is, is awfully important when it comes to how we think about the relationship between love and law and love and freedom. Because for the rich young man, like, there were so many people in the early church who the big debate that they had was, I imagine, if you can kind of reconstruct it from reading Paul's letters, is everyone was running around and like, hey, you know, you're putting all these new obligations on me and you're telling us we have to change and we're telling us we have to think differently about women and about slaves and about what I owe to God and about what it means to love other people, but I've been following this law my entire life, and I've been doing a really darn good job on it, and actually no one had to force me to do it, I just kind of chose to follow the law, because in choosing to follow the law, I do, you know, a proper duty to God and to what is demanded of me. And the the point, I think, for the way early Christians thought about it is it's not enough to choose the right thing. And in fact, in some ways, choosing the right thing is not the important thing. The important thing is to turn yourself towards and to be fully open to the fact that the love of Jesus Christ transforms us and makes us different. It transforms what we want. It transforms how we think. It transforms how we act with others. And if the conditions for that transformation are deep enough, not only is the law not helpful, it's not necessary. It doesn't matter. Because if we truly love and truly see that we seek out the good of the other person and the good of God, we are able to be transformed in a way that reforms ourselves, that makes us different and makes the law not only useless, but even potentially in all the cases we're looking at, a hindrance. Think about that. The law then becomes a hindrance to love because it hinders our freedom. That to me is amazing. Like, the reason why we don't need the law is because we don't, and, and the reason why we don't need something telling us what to do is because if we are remade by the person of Jesus Christ and in relationships that are constituted by love, there is nothing other than Christ that needs to tell or compel us about what to do. And the main thing that gets in the way in that is our own vision of ourselves and what we want and what we need and what we deserve, and once we get beyond that... We can dispose of the law and instead think about everything as fully defined by and fulfilled in love. Mark my words, verse 2 says. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to the whole of the law. Paul's being very precise, isn't he? If you let yourself be circumcised, if you choose circumcision, letting someone do something is a choice. It contains the illusion of freedom. It contains the illusion of having given permission, but the thing that Paul wants to hone on here is that it's not just the choice that you make, it's the relationship that you put yourself in when you think that the law is the thing instead of Jesus being the thing. And like I hear all the time from folks and you say, look, the law is dead. Get rid of the law. Jesus is making this like very stringent critique of the idea of the law. People are always like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But like the law is still there, right? <laughs> you know, like there are still things that we have to do and we can't break those rules. And the point is not, getting rid of the law doesn't mean go kill people. The point is that getting rid of the law means that there is no external constraint or command that needs to dictate that we don't kill people, because if we truly and fully radically love in the way that Christ asks us to, that reminder seems not only superfluous or unnecessary, but it has the risk of making it that we can decide on the basis of our own understanding and our own good what is right, instead of letting the person in face of Christ in the other person, manifest for us what it is that we ought to do in love. That's what, that's what I think it means to say that we're free and that the law is dead, because there's no more constraint on us that is any, in any way meaningful, that is not fulfilled in the idea that when I see the person of Jesus Christ in the other, and I sacrifice for that person, and I love that person, I am open to a freedom in relationship that changes us both. I think that's why Paul says circumcision is of no value. It makes Jesus Christ of no value because it says there's some means by which you can make yourself right with God that are not about listening to, freely relating to, loving, and being directed in your full person by Jesus Christ. And I think that, that like that's the point. The point is the law as requirement doesn't close the gap between us and God. The law as requirement is aimed at the goal of making us right with God, but in Jesus Christ, we are already and fully right with God, and because of that, we can be transformed in a way that the law never could have achieved for us. That's why verse 4 and 6, I'm going to cut out some of the stuff in 5 and jokes, etc., but like, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated, and it's a good circumcision kind of pun here, because the word there is cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, has any value. The word there is strength. It doesn't do anything. The only thing that counts. And it's very rare that, like, the gospel says things in a way that is at the exclusion of other things. The only thing that counts is what? Faith working itself out through love. That's it. That's the only thing that matters anymore. That's the whole burrito. Paul's already said that when we relate to the law as if the law does something for us, what does it do? What's his main objection to that idea of law? It makes you a debtor. What's wrong with being a debtor? I mean, we're all in debt, right? (laughs) What's wrong with being a debtor? You're unfree. When you're a debtor, you are not free to choose in relationship to be and to do and to model and extend and act in and love as Christ has loved us. This is not just saying, hey, the law's not bad. This is saying that sometimes we can put the character of the law, the character of our own decisions, the unfree nature of the law, above the thing that it tries to achieve. I don't know. Whenever I think about this, I, I think about I think about my Callis' story. Y'all remember my Callis' story about this? It's... Uh, it's tough to kind of think through the paradox that's built into the character of the law, but as, as I think about it and think about the relationship between love, law, and freedom, and the idea that in Christ there's not a mandate that forces us to be something, but an invitation to be free and be different because we love and see the character of Jesus. And I remember, uh, I don't know, in our house, I don't know if it works this way, in your house, and now Beth is kind of the master of all things that are like mechanical and toolish. But that used to be me before she totally dominated me in handiworking skill. And so I was like the only one in the house that cared about tools. And, uh, you know, I, I don't blame it on Bob the builder or whatever, but at some point the toddlers in our house kind of always develop this interest in tools. And so because the toddlers developed uh, an interest in tools, we always had to have the daddy rule about tools, which is what? Only daddy touches the tools. No one else can touch the tools but daddy. So, uh, you know, like it was, Cal was kind of the age where she liked to do tasks with me. So I was like, Cal, why don't you help me fix the sink? So I'm like squeezed underneath the sink. The disposal's broken. And like, you know, it was, you know, I was bigger at the time and it was a very small space. And it was like really hard to get yourself in there. And like water's leaking down on me. And I'm trying to like wedge myself in to get around to get leverage on the, on the bolt to get the, Disposal out, and it like takes. It, it honestly felt like it take ten minutes to get in there. Like it had to be Houdini basically to get in the right position and make sure that you held the wrench on the bolt. And so, you know, I'm kind of uh, getting into position and getting all the stuff together. And you know, I kind of reach outside the cabinet and slap down by my. I guess it would have been my left hip, and the and the wrench isn't there. And I'm like, oh man, you know, like, <laughs> and Kala's sitting right there. So I said, Kala, do y'all remember the story? I said, Kala, can you give me the wrench? And I don't know if she was trolling me, but she looked at me and said, Daddy says you can't touch the tools. <laughs> <laughs> and like, for me, it has always been one of the most kind of powerful, because Cal's clever, so, it's one of the most powerful kind of condensations of the character of the law, isn't it? Whether you're like thinking about circumcision in this case, whether you're thinking about um, the, uh, uh, handing a wrench off, whether you're thinking about the rich a young man deciding what commandments he would and, and wouldn't comply with. Like, all those things were instances where the old character of the law served as an impediment to the intention that the master wanted to achieve in it. That we became so obsessed with the idea that we could mechanistically meet the character of the law, and in doing so, we could please the person who laid out the law that we forgot the idea of a relationship and the intention of the law, which is to make us right with God and others. And almost all the instances that we're looking about in these letters from Paul are basically an instance where someone says, my compliance with the law is more important than the condition of my relationship with Jesus or other people. And so when I say that love is about freedom, it's not just saying, as we normally do, look, love is the thing that kind of softens up the law. So let's make sure we really, really, really kind of hammer on the necessity of the moral law and by the way let's say it in a loving way so i don't know like hate the sin love the sinner is our vision of that we kind of balance things out by talking about love as a softening principle and jesus is not just talking about love as a softening principle jesus is talking about love as a revolution in how we think about our relationship to other people where instead of figuring out what the right rules are instead we decide to act towards and with other people as if they are the face of jesus And that we become the face of Jesus to them, and that that idea doesn't mean that you look at whatever a person says and says, hey, yeah, that's great that you're rolling over Ukraine, Vlad, I really, really love you. What it says is that we enter into relationships where the character of that love transforms us, that so we want something different for the other person, and that the other person is open to being transformed because they want something different because they see and believe in the character of love as manifest in the person of Jesus Christ and the promise of the gospel that we can come to love because God first loves us starts to become true in the world. That story about Kala is not just about the relationship between the law and the intention it fulfills, it's also about the relationship between love and freedom. Because to not feel constrained by the law as given or as interpreted, And instead, to see the relationship as the primary thing, which is a big ask for a four-year-old, but more generally, imagine that we could spin it out into the future, Calla would hand me the wrench now. Why? Because she knows that it's cramped under there, and it's wet, and I'm frustrated, and even though I have a general preference that the tools not be touched, it's much, much, much better for the outcome here that she hands it to me, because it requires a kind of maturity and freedom to see the limit of the law and the importance of love as the goal for it. That's it. That's what I think is so interesting about how the early tradition thinks about and how Jesus thinks about and ultimately what we're called to do in love. We are called towards a vision of love, which is not just having a great opinion about the other person and wanting things to go good for them, too. We are called to a vision of love that sacrifices our own benefit, that sacrifices our own vision of what it looks like to be pious, or faithful that sacrifices our own understanding of who we are and what we're supposed to be, that sacrifices our understanding of what the other person's supposed to be for us and instead sees each person as not only made in the image of God, not only that we are thankful for, but that we put what is good for them best and ourselves last, and in doing so we are transformed, and instead of losing, we are made free. We're made free to love and free to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. And that is why you were not obligated or mandated, for example, to be free. You were called into freedom by a creator who created you in love. And as a result, there's this choice. The choice for you is what? Do you serve your own desires or do you humbly serve others? And Paul, like, wraps it up beautifully here, doesn't it? He says, uh, 13, you, my brothers and sisters, what were we called to? Even before we are called to love or obedience to the law or any of those things, The way that Paul puts it here is we're called to be free. We are called to be unconstrained and unconditioned, but the question is what do we do with that unconstraint and lack of condition? And Paul says for the Christian, it means to follow in the model of Jesus, not to use our freedom to indulge our flesh, but rather to serve one another humbly in love. And it parallels perfectly the idea that God did not consider Godhood something to be held on to, but instead emptying himself taking on the form of a man. And why? Why are we called to use our freedom to love others humbly? Why is it that God empties God's self and becomes one of us? Because the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the whole of the law. It's fulfilled. And though we often forget it, not only is it fulfilled, but it is utterly transcended in loving the neighbor as you typically love yourself. And that's why the law is not only imperfect, is dead, is gone, disposed of, doesn't count anymore, because love is the goal, and in Christ, through faith, we have access to it in the most complete and perfect and fully free form. Amen. Questions are taught?